What's up, internet friends? Welcome to Full Stack Whatever. I am your host, Michael Omens, and today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Alex Cornell and George Kettenberg III. Instead of sitting down at a dining table or recording over Riverside, Alex, George, and I sat down in my living room, so you'll likely notice a much more chill conversation that navigates itself between some serious topics and some of our opinions and hobbies. We talked about design, we talked about technology, we talked about the various things that we're interested in, things that bother us in life, etc. I'm really enjoying experimenting with the format in these recent episodes, and I hope you do too. So here is episode 30, Zoom in Real Life. Very cool. It's like Zoom in real life. (laughs) Here we are. Zoom in real life. Yeah. <laughs> That's Alex, a great podcast. <laughs> Alex and George. We're here. That's the title. Wow. Like we started on the title. Oh, it's great. Yeah. I, I saw how you titled your episodes and thought, yeah. let's try to get this in one. Episode 30, Zoom in real life. Amazing. Now, oh, now I don't. Great. Yeah. Now I don't even have to do the pre-roll. <laughs> I'm done with that. Oh, great. Um, We're pros. Yeah. That actually, I hate doing the pre-rolls. It's my <laughs> least favorite thing. Because generally, it, the the episodes drop at 4 a.m. Yeah. on Tuesdays, 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Europe. So I like hit the main time zones that listen. That means on Mondays, I'm generally like, oh, crap, I have to do the pre-roll. Mm. And then I have to plop the pre-roll onto the timeline. I have to mix in the theme music. But it's the same as it being 11.30 p.m. and you're realizing that you didn't put the trash out yet. <laughs> it's that kind of feeling. Yeah. Audio trash. Yeah, the audio the audio trash. Another good episode title alternate. Oh, my uh, God. Just in case. We're here for it. Keep coming. Maybe it's just a title of titles. <laughs> Everything you say must be a title. That is the way people talk now, I think. At least the way I think is usually my thoughts come through as tweets and I lengthen them when I speak. You know, so like that's just what the way my brain is optimizing. You know, like oh, I could tweet that. I Are your thoughts that. in title case? <laughs> well, I capitalize my letters. <laughs> like some my thoughts here. are in full lowercase yeah, yeah. for sure. I had a big lowercase phase in college, and I was like really persnickety about the quality of my MP3 library mm. because I just bought my first iPod, which was the iPod Photo, mm-hmm. the first, like the Gen Four Photo. And everything had to be lowercase. <laughs> I was still on Windows. I know that my audio player on Windows was FUBAR because that was like the true quality one. I had, like a, I had like a digital audio interface. I had like a good set of headphones and FUBAR was like, you got the highest mm. res. Winamp was not good enough mm. or something, right? And then, yeah, it looped into my iPod and it was all lowercase and all the ID3 tags, all the extra addendum tags were like all cleared <laughs> out or they were all they were all in really good shape. Different time. Yeah. Different time. I always poke people like George. We've we've <laughs> talked about this before, like for the the intentional lowercasing of of everything online. And I've heard different explanations for why people do it. I think it feels more casual. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. I think it feels less casual because I know you had to do it on purpose. But that's not true on your phone, I think. Right? Correct. Is yeah. Right? Yeah. And I don't have auto capitalization yeah, turned on. That's the so. difference. Nice. Yeah. I think it just like, it feels more chill, more casual, mm-hmm. but also like more AOL instant messenger in a way, which is just nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm also like not trying to write a letter, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, I dig it. Whenever I use lowercase, it's sarcasm. Mm. So whenever it's lowercase, it's sarcasm if it's on Twitter. And when it's like proper punctuation, it's, I mean this. This is a real thought. Yeah, I guess I've just never turned off the settings. So like I just do what it would do normally. Sure. The default is that. But it is interesting. I've definitely categorized in my head, I suppose no longer, but in the past when I would follow people on Twitter, 
I could tell you right now who I follow who uses all lowercase on purpose. Like someone like Dom. Mm-hmm. I've never seen him write a capital letter. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and why do I never know seen it? Yeah. You know? It's a weird thing to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're here with uh, Alex Cornell and George Kettenberg III. Hi. Welcome to KQED. <laughs> That's not KQED, <laughs> but that's kind of what it started sounding like. I had to get so. sued really quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this episode, not in any way, shape, or form endorsed by KQED. No. Keep the lawyers away. <laughs> we are sitting here on the third beautiful San Francisco day in a row. Not bad. We're in the living room. No more dining tables to keep a distance between ourselves so we don't have a lot of crosstalk, but also to make the vibe more chill. Two of us are chill. George is sitting forward. I feel chill. Great. I'm spiritually chill. Perfect. Yeah. We're drinking some lovely Einstock white ales and I'm having a ranch water. This actually harkens back to the first episode where we announced what we were drinking. I think the first five or something. <laughs> just really bring people into the room. You just, you're all here. We have some lovely warm lighting. None of that daylight. What is it? Lower Kelvins or higher Kelvins? Yeah. I think it's cooler goes down, right? Yeah. All is to say daylight bulbs are not the way to go. You know, the next level thing I've learned about is... They have lights that are aware of what time it is. Obviously, we've seen this before, but they will track the white balance of the day. It'll start out super warm. It'll go super white, and then it will end super warm, which to me sounds, that's the kind of thing I would pay for. I like that. I like that it would just, if you want the room to get brighter, it just gets brighter. It doesn't get brighter orange and white at the same time. Yeah. I'm surprised there's a market for that. I feel like, I was like, oh, I'm in. That sounds great. But like other people will pay for that. Amazing. It also kind of sounds like that's, yeah setting that hue should have had it does my hue my some of my hue lights do that through home kit my hues uh, just make purple light yeah i think i have a couple of the non-color ones but anyway it was like an option in home kit maybe it's an apple thing that uses hue i don't know but it's nice when it works yeah 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 i mean it's important i feel like it's the that's probably the thing i thought about the most with our house is lighting because it just affects everything all day so we have our space very dialed in especially my office what does dialed in mean with lighting? Well, color temperature is big for sure. You know, mm-hmm. I think getting that right is important. I hate overhead lighting, which you've done a good job eliminating right now. You know, like I just don't like the way it looks. I don't like the shadows that it creates. Yeah. I don't really like seeing the source either. So like if you can see the source, it's just like too much brightness. So I like soft lights coming from places you can't see. There's actually three lights in this room right now where you can see the source. That's okay. So Alex is <laughs> doing okay. I'll do, get by. Right. I'll survive. He's, he's doing right. the whole thing with his I, eyes closed. I found these before we started recording. We we talked a lot about remodeling and other preferences in life. So these are very specific lights that I found that are four inches and they are the warmest that you can get and you can tilt them. They're like art lights. They're like art lights. So that makes it much less bad than when we look at the kitchen and the six inch like bright white cans yeah. coming down. Yeah. Raining hellfire from the sky. <laughs> See, these are the things that we think about now. Yeah. <laughs> How wide are your lights and your ceiling? <laughs> I've thought about this too. I think it's the evolution of, at a certain point, you may decide that you want to become a designer, but be, way before that, you start realizing that a lot of small things in life bother you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you start learning how to put them in the words. Yeah. It's cool when you realize it's a, it's a job. Like I still remember the first time I got a magazine. I think it was, do you remember a magazine called Type, I think it was called? The first time you realize, wait, there's a whole field here. There's jobs here. And there are other people <laughs> that are doing this. It's pretty exciting. Type, was, I think it was called Type. I can't remember. But I remember the first time I learned that people cared about typography. That was pretty wild. 
Yeah. It's just not a thing that I realized people had thought about. You just thought letters manifest the way they do in a classroom, you know? And that, the, and that there are rules and when they're not properly spaced. Yeah. You now can explain to people why you're bothered by that. Right. It's kerning. It's called kerning. Yeah. I always joke whenever somebody puts something down in front of a table like at a restaurant, immediately I adjust the spacing. And I've done that my whole life. And I never really yeah. thought about it. Anytime there's objects like amongst, like on the table, there's some batteries. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm thinking about the spacing. <laughs> I yeah, could yeah, probably yeah. arrange those in a yeah. more pleasing way. Yeah, you know. These- yeah, but then someone's, you know what? I'll pay you to do that on your computer. Yeah. It's like, wow, that sounds amazing. Sold. You know, yeah, sold. Although George and I have talked about this, but like, I think the appeal of that has started to fade a little bit. You know, like the box is moving around. Mm. Maybe it's just that there's more mediums now, but you've moved on to a, a new space, a new world now. Yeah. I mean, I think I just like making stuff, you know, and I think that like, that can be rectangles on a screen, but that can be a lot of other things too. They're all equally valid, but it's easy to get wrapped up in like, no, the rectangles are the thing that I make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's other things too. Yeah, I wonder, I remember when, I think we were all at Facebook when VR was sort of like initiating it. And I remember that it sort of felt like a spaceship leaving port where it's like, everybody get on because this planet's dying. If you don't join and learn Unity, you're dead. And I was like, oh no, you know, like, should I, should I, should I do that? Should I, should I, should I do that? You know, that was like, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. And like, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that I didn't, didn't at the time. And it feels that, you know, you, you could say that now with vision OS or something like that. Should you switch? What well, you, AI, AI, you know, yeah, anything. And I don't know, it's, it is nice to know that sort of like the core premise of all of this sort of stays stable and you can focus on that. But yeah, I do wish I'd learned 3D just a little bit. Although now you just. AI make it it's nice to have I feel like I wanted to learn 3D just from the image making aspect of it of you can like compose an image and it will look however you want I did like a few blender tutorials but I never really got there where I'm like yeah I'm making 3D stuff but I feel like I would get the same personal satisfaction of just making yeah. cool stuff on mid-journey because to me it's yeah. just like I don't I, don't, I just want to see a cool image I don't I don't necessarily care how it got there for the thing that I'm doing, using it for. And so that's been very satisfying. And it's also made me similar. It's just, I'm glad I didn't spend all that time learning because it's just like such a big field and there's so many things to learn and things Mm -hmm. to understand and fongs and nerves and Mm -hmm. materials. And it's Mm -hmm. just, you could, I mean, people spend a lot of time diving into all that stuff. And there's people that love the still images. There's people that love the particle systems and how to do animation. The two that pop to mind for me are Jean-Marc Denis doing it truly as this artistic exploration. And then most recently, Tim Van Dam doing it because he wants to make keyboards. Yeah. Mm. And I think what is really cool that to me is his approach is, yes, there's art to it because there's this environment that he puts them in, but it really is about a lot of replication of a lot of concepts. And having that feedback loop very tight is how we probably all sitting in this room right now got really good at our jobs really fast because we had that feedback loop. If we would do a side project or something fun, we'd throw it out there. Some of it got seen, some of it didn't get seen. We got feedback. When we work, we empowered the use of critique. That means that whatever I'm gonna show at max has like a four day age. And so you get some more input, you have your engineers give you input, whatever. There's not that many roles where you can actually do that very quickly. And I think that 
especially the Figma on ramp right now feels very small comparatively to Photoshop way mm, back when. Totally. But it doesn't really seem like that 3D on ramp is yeah. you know that small. Like SketchUp actually was a fantastic. I remember it was like probably mid 2000s or something where I like saw SketchUp for the first time and I was like, holy, this is fun. I can draw in 3D. Can I make a box now? Yeah. No nerves. Yeah. Yeah. I recently learned, not learned, but became more than an idiot with Fusion 360 for doing 3D printing stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was 3D, but it's more focused on designing physical, yeah. functional things. And so it, to me, it felt kind of like Figma in 3D, where it's really more about what's the measurement of these lines, because they all have a function and a purpose versus here's this canvas, go paint something. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in learning that, I guess, because there was something on the other side of it. I want to make this thing. How do I get there? Didn't yeah? Didn't you make like holders for hue lights on your? Yeah, desk? I printed about. I, I my yeah. thing is just full circle. By the way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 3D printing stuff that you would never or could never buy on Amazon. Just yeah. like really, really weird single. So I, I recently 3D printed. I have this like pipe in my garage that sort of runs along the ceiling, and I bought this little projector. It looks like a Sonos, but it's a projector, and I got it for a Halloween party because I wanted to like project stuff on the wall, and I rationalized it by like, oh it'll be good to have a little projector for like travel or for like whatever. And then it just sat on my shelf. And I realized that like we have a little gym downstairs. We had this like dinky little TV on a mount. I was like, oh, there's this pipe and there's this big white blank wall. It'd be great to put the projector there. And at least we could use it for workout classes and stuff. But I didn't want to mount it. I didn't want to like figure out how to hang it from the ceiling properly. I just wanted to like hang it off the pipe. And so I like 3D printed a whole contraption to hang the projector off of the pipe without having to like actually affix it to anything. Mm. You can't buy it. You can go to the on Amazon and be like pipe, Apple TV projector hanger. Like you're not going to get that. And it's just it's just fun to like because it's all just rectangles at the end of the day. It's but it's like what is the purpose that they have? And it was fun to apply that to solving like a real world. So I've been, I've 3D printed like a bunch of just random things like that around the house. You could maybe sell those things. And I know. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think the Figma on-ramp feels so, I guess, easy because at least my memory of Photoshop was it felt like you were always forcing this tool to do a thing that it wasn't meant to do. Learn Photoshop to do other things. Edit imagery, look at pictures, and then one day I'm like trying to convert 1X, 2X iPhones icons. And it's you clearly this is the wrong thing. So find some layer styles. Well, so that this is my favorite thing. And I, I sometimes tweet at Dylan about this because we all remember what apps look like when you design them in Photoshop. And it, there was a certain version where they basically look like whatever tools we had, drop shadow, inner shadow, gloss, emboss. That's what apps look like, very skeuomorphic. And then now apps look like whatever Figma provides us, which is, oh, you want to do two strokes at once? Sorry, you can't do that. You know, so it's, you're not yeah. going to see a whole lot of that going on anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like you want to do drop shadows, background blur, all that. Every app can do that. So I want them to just throw something in there, like a random thing. I don't know what it would be. Like noise is a good example. I know plugins are have this, but like noise was a thing in Photoshop that you could yeah. just add. I feel like if Figma put that into the little panel on the side, suddenly you just start seeing it everywhere. Yeah. My favorite thing was actually that they brought back background blur into the product. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, I don't have to fake this anymore. That's pretty great. But it's not like the way origami does, it makes so much more sense. It's there's a there's a native way to do it. It's like there's settings for this that you could map to in iOS code. 
Mm-hmm. Background blur with a single number is not the way it works. So yeah. if you just turn background blur on, it's great. <laughs> that's not how it's going to look at all. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's frustrating because that's why I gravitate towards tools like Origami where it's like, when I actually send this into production, this is actually the name of the haptic that will fire. This is actually what the camera looks like, whatever it is. That makes a huge difference. If you're just sort of approximating these things, I think that can be really misleading sometimes when you go to actually try to implement it. So the reason why we're all here is the two of you work closely together at a certain point on live, I think, Mm -hmm. at Facebook. And I always think of you two as kind of like two different sides of the same coin of wanting to, just what you were saying, like just make a thing. Like I remember George from the Parse Framer days (laughs) And first time that I've heard of Alex was because he posted a video internally, <laughs> which, he, which, he, which he did a surprise, lot. Surprise, Which he did a lot, yeah. How many times have I heard that? Uh, I wonder how many people that's their like origin story for you. Uh, like they made this crazy workplace yeah. post. Yeah. Probably a lot. Yeah. You guys are a very big Venn diagram, I, but, but in my mind, George, you, you live more on the code side a little bit more and Alex lives a lot on the doing things with cameras and multimedia insanity way to do storytelling. Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe that's why we enjoyed working together so much, but I think we do a very complementary skill set. When I've tried to explain it to people, I usually, the first word I've always thought of with George is generative. Like if there's a idea that you need a lot of ideas that are at production quality, because it's one, anybody can do a lot of ideas, but I mean, here's a lot of things you could ship. George is at the highest I've ever seen, really, at a very creative level. I think that's probably because of what tools you can wield. Like you can simultaneously design something in static mode, but then also go build it in, I mean, I don't even know anymore, origami now. I used to at least have origami on George. I could be like, well, at least I know origami. He knows Framer, but I know origami. And then now you're in like a parallel universe. So Yeah. yeah, but I think that helps a lot. If you have this crazy idea for something, And the only way to execute it is to use this very difficult tool. It takes somebody with a lot of knowledge like George to be able to do that. So, and I've never been quite that way. I can explain it. I can rationalize it. I can probably even sell you on it in like a a, Mm -hmm. a really well-produced video. But yeah. I feel like I definitely learned more about how to be a designer from working with you for sure because parse was like my first job in tech i'd only been at facebook for a year before that i was like designing websites for an advertising agency in orlando i had never done any of this stuff before and so i was just like figuring it out and then parse sort of goes away and i'm like what do i do now and there was this team i was like oh cool yeah video stuff neat i had no idea what i was doing you know and so it was amazing for me to just sort of like walk into a place where you are sort of painting this giant masterpiece thing when I can roll up and be like, oh, I could like probably prototype that. Yeah. And you're like, really? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Why not? I mean, I could figure it out, you know, through that, just sort of absorbing a lot of the really great sort of visual sense that you have. It was awesome. Yeah. Because that was a pretty big jump for you, right? The parse to facebook jump parse very much like large screen work i had never really designed for mobile before Mm, like a teeny tiny bit okay mobile websites is one thing yeah and then i did a little bit of app stuff in orlando before facebook and then parse was yeah it was all web i designed like an app we never built it but it was all website stuff still which Mm. i was good at but i'd never really like i mean facebook was technically like the first app i worked on Mm. really And so it was all very new. 
yeah, I just, I was, how can I help? You know, yeah. it was a really good time. I mean, I, th I think a really great time in design history, but also in Facebook history. But that team at that time was very small, had incredible leadership, had a lot of empowerment, I think, from Mark because live was such a big deal at the time. It kind of like came and went, but it was, it was a really big deal at the time and video also. And so you had all of the energy and resources of this big company behind a relatively small set of designers, which was just really fun because we all really liked each other. We got to work in a medium that I think video is a great example because like none of the tools can replicate it except for these weird tools like origami. Figma just Frame. added video support like, like this year. Yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like everything we did immediately was unrealistic on the screen when you're just looking at it static in sketch at the time. What are all these reactions? Yeah, yeah. What are yeah, the, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's one of those things that like, if you can't see it moving or feel it, it's just like, what are you talking about? So I'd do it in After Effects and then George would be like, or I could just build it for you in Framer, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah I built, the, I built yeah. the first one in Framer. And uh, I did the first one in After Effects, which yeah. is like useless to any engineer. It's, oh, cool. How'd you do that? <laughs> you don't have this particle generator <laughs> inside of just your code? Just get this plugin yeah. for, uh, for <laughs> yeah. Xcode. Yeah, and yeah. All, yeah. It was very fun. I, do, I definitely miss those days for sure. It was a, a special time. It was fun. Yeah. You ended up working together for two years? Yeah, it was 18? 20. Well, no, it was 2016 to 18. Yeah. So two, maybe two and a half. Yeah. It feels longer, but yeah, pretty. I guess a pretty short burst relatively. So I know, you, George, you went to Instagram. Then. I did. Yeah, after that. And Alex, you made a really big video when you left, I think. I didn't make a video when I left. I think I'd sort of like videoed out at that point. Or maybe um, you did a vision video about something. Yeah, yeah. But well, it wasn't about you leaving. It was just like, no, about, no, hey, yeah. here's the future. Yeah, I think my my biggest gripe there always was that there was like seven different video experiences mm -hmm. that all had different design renderings. You know, it's like seven different play buttons and et cetera. So it was like a simultaneously coalescing all those experiences, but doing it under the theme was presence. So we came from live. So everything was always like about audience and community and experiencing things together. And it felt to me like, that didn't need to be relegated just to live. It could happen with anything. And one idea, which I wish this would never ship, but it's it's wild and I think it would be hilarious is, so they did ship a live video counter on every video. So I don't know if it's still there, but sometimes you see it where you can see how many people in the world are watching the video at a given time. Mm -hmm. Kind of interesting, but not so interesting if everybody's at a different spot. And so the idea was what if every video on Facebook played back like TV kind of, you know, so it's, you just have to catch it where it's at. And for a second, you're like, that's amazing. That'd be so much fun. And then like a half a second later, you're like, it's also a really bad idea. You can't go back. But I was like, no, no, you can go back. You would just lose everybody else. You'd yeah. lose all the other people that you're watching with. And yeah. But anyway, I, I, when George went to Instagram, I left. That wasn't related. We just both sort of made the decision at the same time. And so you started Cocoon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I left with another guy and we started um, Cocoon, which we did for... I want to say three years or so, and then we got acquired by Substack, and then now I'm at Linear. And George recently left. Well, not even recently, a like year, a year and a half A year ago. and a half now, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Nice. And so you're working at Humane now. I am, yep. Nice. So we have this like two, three year period. George came in more as like the prototyper, let's make this real angle. Yeah. Maybe Tori had other ideas for me, and that was sort of like in the back of his mind, but I just came in as, I'm just going to join this team, and... Yeah. I kind of rolled up. I mean, it was already sort of like well on its way to shipping at that point. It was like, it was already designed because you already yeah. had After Effects videos of the whole thing. 
And I was just like, oh, After Effects, that's cool. Like, has anybody played with this on a phone yet? And you were like, well, no, we haven't really. I was like, I could probably like make this a framer prototype. Like mm. I could build this. Yeah. And so that was just sort of the first place that I saw that I could kind of help. Yeah. I, some of those live reactions I just had done in After Effects and then George replicated them in code in a way that we could then explain to engineering because it's because he had to think of it from a code perspective. And I think that's actually the benefit of any tool like that, origami, framer, whatever. Even if it's not code you can use, you're forced down the same logic path that an engineer will be. Mm-hmm. So that it's okay, look, if I can do this, yeah, you can, you can also this. explain it probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. All the thinking is transferable. Yeah. You can't take framer code and ship it to production, but right. I can explain it and someone who's an engineer can be like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. Whereas After Effects might just not be possible. A or very, very good engineer could look at yeah. that and be like, oh, yeah, I got it. Sure. Engineer slash mathematician. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I don't mean Lottie files. I mean like actual After Effects, like real crazy shit going yeah. on. Yeah. Like deep into the plugins where it's, you're not, <laughs> you're not going to send out an SVG, you know? Yeah. This is a, a bit of a non-traditional episode because normally it's one person and we go through some stuff where there's like kind of a theme around it. And having now intro- introduced you both, given a little context, one of the things that I'd love to hear is your paths converged on live at Facebook. You had a path before that and you had a path since. And so what I'm in- interested in is that intersection how has that shifted your perception about yourself, your career, your skills, et cetera? Because for a lot of people, and at least at that time, you, you mentioned this earlier, it was like a great time in, in design. I think it was like the apex of mobile design, but then it was also the apex of Facebook really being generative and jumping into a lot of different things. For a lot of people that have that as one of their first experiences or first tech experiences, it's also, at least for me, it's been like a really important formative moment. You know, I know that you probably both have somewhat similar ideas around this, but you probably also have some different ideas around this. Gosh, um, when I think of that moment, because I do agree with you that it felt sort of like some kind of culmination of various things. For me, that moment was where I realized how important communication and framing is in an organization, especially at the scale of Facebook, obviously. When it's enormous, it's very important. But the thing that I came away with, I learned two things there, basically. It was like prototyping and how useful that can be. And then also just like how much of an advantage it can be if you can convince other people of things. And you can do that verbally, but I found that I could do it way better if I could just like impress people almost with shock and awe style communication where they'd sort of be like knocked out and be like, whoa, what is that? I just saw that moment they let their guard down and my idea would sneak in. And that's required at a place like Facebook. It's not at a small company like Linear, but it's still a useful skill. That was sort of the thing I didn't have when I came in and I had when I left. And I I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, I sometimes describe working at a big company as everyone is sort of pushing a giant boulder, but it, it everyone's wrapped around it. So it's never moving anywhere, but everybody's like getting really, really good at pushing. <laughs> and you just get very strong through pushing a boulder nowhere for so long. <laughs> then you leave and you're like moving rocks around. And you're like, oh gosh, this is so easy. Because it's just this like, I'm the only one moving this tiny little rock. Look how far I can move it. And so you really just learn the benefits of communication and 
framing and context and all. I mean, that I think for me was the biggest, the biggest and most important thing I learned in that period of time was just, especially sitting next to Alex and watching him make the incredible, crazy things that he makes. It's just, oh, that's how you get ideas out into the world, which is like half, if not more of the battle. It's very easy to make something that looks cool. It's very hard to turn that into something that like actually ships, especially at a big company. That had a big impact on me for sure. Probably the only reason I got anything done at Instagram was like knowing all, knowing sort of how to get stuff done. Quickly, I think you did exactly what my favorite thing, which is that metaphor is perfect. The, the rock one, because like now I think if you were to ask somebody, what's it like to work at a big company? Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. You could tell them that metaphor and you would explain it a lot better than I could if I were to just try to tell you, oh yeah, you know what? Being there, you're going to hone a lot of skills. So when you go blah, 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 no one's going to listen. But I really like that because you're right. The rock didn't move. We we all just stood around the rock. We absorbed its form. We <laughs> Maybe sometimes it, it shifts yeah, or it wiggles. And you're yeah, like, did yeah. it wiggle? Did it move? And you're like, I think it moved. <laughs> it moved. It moved 0.01% that yeah. way. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then, yeah, exactly. When you, we all got really strong. Yeah. And then now when we left, moving things around more than 0.1% in various directions is like way easier, you know? And I, whenever people ask me like, oh, I'm considering this or this and one of those things is a big company especially if that person doesn't have a lot of experience, push them towards the big company because I think you can just, you learn so much there way faster than you might expect. The the rock not moving is like a very interesting spin on the Sisyphus. Sisyphus, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not quite as depressing because he's pushing the rock up the hill and it rolls back down. I think there's the, the nice thing about the big company rock is that you, you have friends you, around. We have friends around. You can't tell if it's moving. It might yeah. be moving. Yeah. It's not obviously repeat, we're like in, an infinite loop, you know? Yeah. If you coordinate with enough other people on the other side of the rock, you can move <laughs> the rock. Like, you can yeah. actually move it. But yeah. it's just you have to go person by person and be like, hey, we're going to move the rock tomorrow. If you can do that enough, then it is possible to move the rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really fucking hard. Yeah. I think the thing about a company like Facebook, which a lot of the work that the company does doesn't directly relate to the like how the company actually makes money, in my mind means that you're on a conveyor belt on this mountain and there's another group of people cranking the conveyor belt basically while you all stand there holding that thing up in the sky. <laughs> yeah. And so you all of a sudden revenue soars and and but only 10% of the company focused on on revenue. Mm. Everyone else was focusing on keeping the rock in the sky, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like a subterranean part of this in the metaphor for sure. I think that like disconnection between most of the product functions and like what actually drives the business is probably like the reason that most people just leave angry. You know, it's that there is there are these like invisible forces that like everybody tries to pretend like they don't actually exist but they do exist and they will appear at some point when, oh, yeah, we made this great change, but like that extra two pixels per post we were using in feed is tanking revenue by a gajillion dollars. And yeah. so, sorry, we can't do that. And it's like, what? Where did that wall co- That wall wasn't there two seconds ago. You can't pretend like mm. is, then you, you that's why the rock doesn't move because it's like there, it's actually bolted to the ground underneath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there was a, the, my my favorite example, humbling example, I guess, of this was my vision for video always involved extreme focus on the video you're watching, hyper respect to the creator who made it. And like your your viewer would be pristine 
And if you were to leave the video, it would be very manual, et cetera. The literal opposite of TikTok, for example. But in Facebook, well before TikTok existed, the TikTok experience of a vertical scrolling feed of video that you could just swipe through all the time. I couldn't have hated something more because that violated every principle I had as like a video guy, you know? And it's a great example of that where it's, we often felt like we were fighting against that because we can never beat that player. It was impossible. Like yeah. everything we ever changed would be like, well, nope, this one's better. People like this one better. And in my mind, I'm like, why did they like it better? How could they possibly? You have to realize there's so much more at play. And in that, in that case, it's more than just money too. It's the, the TikTok experience is better for a lot of reasons. It's not necessarily just money. But I remember thinking like, wow, I was profoundly wrong <laughs> in, that, in that moment. Because imagine if in that moment we'd been like, no, this way. Yeah. It would have been crazy. Yeah. When Instagram got acquired and we joined, one of the first projects that I kind of was, was visible to me all of a sudden, because you joined Facebook and then you get access to all the feature flags, was this project called Lightstand, which was like a completely okay. redesigned web experience. We had that for a year and a half, I think. And then it died because they just couldn't figure out the revenue thing, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a whole complete redesign of Facebook and many of its primary screens to this new aesthetic, effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes, and I'm obviously not the billionaire running the company, but sometimes you, you need to have a budget for how much pain you're willing to take. So you create a new foundation that you can build all the other stuff on. Because eventually the web app just atrophied so hard compared to what was happening on mobile. And then, and then mobile, there were obviously the tab wars of 2016 God. where there were like so many different tab <laughs> iterations. But mobile really accelerated away from it for a while. And then on top of that, react native like took hold and then teams could even accelerate further away from it until there was this whole comet redesign that took four years to create or something and there's something in that where you when you over optimize for these metrics and because of these metrics you actually don't have an opinionated vision of where it needs to go and therefore you just follow the numbers on the one hand, what I've learned since is that many companies are actually really, really, really bad at identifying the metrics that they need to move. And that's one of the reasons why Facebook is as successful as it is. On the other hand, I do think that there is a world where you can actually do that, plus also have a holistic vision about where the whole thing needs to go. Yeah, I agree. I think that's probably one of the most frustrating misalignments you can have in a company as an individual. It's if you sort of are willing to accept that you may call it a step back, whatever. Like, we think this is better. We think it looks better. We think it feels better. Whatever it is, we're willing to accept the following, you know, metrics dip. A lot of companies are too scared, too timid to accept any of that in the short term at all. It might, it might revert. Who knows? You know, you never know. But like, you change almost anything on a site like Facebook, it will probably go down or be neutral or whatever. It's, it's not going to do the metric thing that you want to see. But that's not why you're doing it, probably. Like Lightstand, you probably weren't. Like I remember it was a very beautiful experience, but it was not a metrics-motivated project in the first place. It's painful. I mean, just the, the trap of metrics, because it's like, it's so easy. And I know it's not actually easy, but especially in a context like Facebook, where you have a very mature sort of like data logging department, right? Where it's just all the data's there. And it's like, why wouldn't you look at it? 
You can almost, you could imagine a like 1800 snake oil salesman being like, I've got the cure to all your problems. Look at these magic numbers. It sounds so appealing, but it, it's such a trap because you end up just chasing things that don't matter or not everything can be measured in a way that is valid. There's all the sort of secondary effects outside of that. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote like a whole note about how much I hate holdouts because I just truly hate holdouts <laughs> so much. And it's like, imagine if Disney opened this- What's the holdout, George? Sorry. A holdout is a terrible, terrible thing that big companies <laughs> do where a certain very, very small percentage of people will just never get a certain feature. And of course they'll get it eventually, but like sometimes six months, a year, multiple years. Multiple years. Yeah. And it's purely because it's the easiest way to be like, look at how good of a job this team did. And we can we can give it an exact number because look at how miserable these people are who never got it's this like feature. A placebo kind yeah, of Yeah, it's yeah, horrible. Yeah. And like <laughs> part of this note was like, imagine if Disney could do holdouts in real life and you just show up to Disney and it's like, where's this Star Wars thing? I saw my friends posting about it and they're like, what? It's just like everyone in the park acts like it doesn't exist. And you can't look at every map and you can't find it. You can't walk to it. But you've like seen your friends post about it, but it just like to you, it just doesn't exist. And all, the only reason Disney does it is because it's well, we want to know how good it is. And it just makes something good. Like, why do you need to know this like exact precise number just so you can get a little bit better of a bonus? You know, like that's- No, anyway. Like, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, anyway. There's certain holdouts that I can get behind around like certain onboarding experiences and really like seeing what's like a truly smooth onboarding experience, totally. but you don't take away core functionality. Everything's good in moderation. And yeah. I think metrics included. Like there are tons of valuable uses for things like that, for A-B testing. All of that stuff has its place and its purpose. But like when you use that as the hammer to every nail, it's not always going to be the right way to know if you're doing the right thing. But it's very, if you're if you're in a place where there's no real opinion from any leader on what the right thing is to do, that just fills the vacuum because it's, look, the number went up, so it must right. be good. Or the number went down, so it must be bad. It it makes it so that no one in the room has to be the person who says, I don't like this thing. Well, the numbers or, well, like, let's just test it and find out. And it's find out what? Yeah, it's a very interesting input because usually at a small or big company, it's combined with it's usually you have data, sometimes you have research, and then you also have the feelings of the of the teammates and like what you actually want or or believe in. And I think just by virtue of the fact that it's numbers, it feels like this very objective measure. But if you've been anywhere that and, and, and somewhere like Facebook, I think would be as robust an organization at doing this as you can imagine. So it only gets worse from there. It's like you start to realize how, I wouldn't call it subjective, but it's definitely not the truth that you're seeing when you look at the numbers. So twistable. In the, it, same, in the same way that research is. Like I've been in a room where you can steer those results pretty easily. Like if you just read the report, you might think one thing, but if you're in the room, you'll think another thing. And the same is true of data, even though it seems like it shouldn't be possible. I mean, I regularly tell the story of trying to ship full screen live <laughs> yeah. uh, and how we, we spun for like, I, it felt like six months. Maybe it wasn't that long, but it was, a, it was six months, wasn't it? Like it was a while. And it all came down to like, there was a bug on Android and people outside of the tests were getting like 
distorted videos or something. But everybody pointed the finger at design for truly like six months. They're like, this is terrible. This is, look how bad this thing yeah, is. And, and we're all just so confused because we're like, it's it so much it's, obviously better. Like, yeah. it's just mm -hmm. so much clearer. Because before that, live was just a little square. Like, yeah. it was just a square broadcast. Yeah. And it was like, this is clearly so much better. And yeah, we reiterated a little bit and we made it a little better. But like, it was just a stupid bug yeah. that like was not apparent until I don't even know how we ended up finding yeah. it. But that's my go-to story for don't trust metrics. Well, it's a good one because it's like, <laughs> what's the hypothesis? It's my hypothesis is full screen video is probably better because obviously it is, you know, and I could explain, we all could understand why that would be the case. It's like, I could see more of the video. The alternate, it usually doesn't come with a hypothesis. It comes with, well, watch time is down. It's like, but why? What's the reason? You know, it's like, oh, well, there isn't an obvious hypothesis. It's just the number. It's that's usually a good warning sign, you know, that like something's up. And it usually is a bug, or it's, it was actually this other thing. There's usually some reason that you just don't know because it's such a complex system. Or most likely, usually, I mean, especially at smaller companies, the test is set up poorly. It's yeah. like this stuff is so complex. And I feel like at Facebook, we experience the best of the best. It's everything is set up as, as good as it can be, analyzed by the best of the best. And then you go elsewhere and it's people try to sort of replicate that, but it's like you can't because you don't have the scale for one, but you also don't have like the density of talent to like actually do it, but you have all of the same processes, you know? So it's a funny thing and it's it's a little bit depressing to see it sort of like replicate across the industry a little bit. I'm not everywhere. I mean, like that's one of the reasons why I love working at Linear is they have a very very opinionated set of founders who do what they think is right. And they're building a product that has like a very clear path. And that has, I think, appealed to me a lot more recently than used to. Same. One of the interesting things that came to mind when you were just talking, Alex, was I feel one of the big takeaways for me is that the reason why the Facebook technology org is so successful is that so much of the team of what you want to do, like so much of what you want to do as an individual, be it a designer, engineer, PM, whatever, is self-serve or there is enough education and, and literature around it where a lot of what I found outside of it is, okay, the team wants to know something about the data. Some data scientist is going to be or some analyst is going to be tapped on the shoulder for this. Mm -hmm. And... I think that democratization of making the tooling for these like really high velocity, high impact things, mm -hmm. very rarely have I heard about them in other places. And it actually like speeds up the process so much because you don't have to go talk to folks. It's like giving engineers a design system or like a PM a design system and say, just put the boxes together the way that you want them and then mm -hmm. come to me with why you think that's the case because you give them the tools all of a sudden, right? And actually that specific example, what I find interesting is a lot of designers are really uncomfortable with that. <laughs> oh, I'm going to give you a toolbox and then you're going to design it. But then it's just the start of a conversation, right? And I think that engineering having access to the data pipelines in a way that is very consumable. And then even I was always like digging around in like the different yeah. data tools, just trying to back up hypotheses or when yeah. I would see an experiment that I didn't believe in, yeah. I would go dig and be like, oh, this kind of feels off. This right. Why, you know, you, you, would, you would get your deltoid results and then you yeah. would be an experiment review. And then it's, oh, here are the top 30 results that we care about. Yeah. And then I would always click the all results thing and I would go look. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, there's this one in the corner over here that's off. Why is it off? Yeah. And in some cases, it's like somebody messed something up 
right. somewhere. Yeah, but you didn't see it if you scoped if you it. just yeah. if you if you would just look over it and you look and you look at it like you look at all the twelve yeah. other experiments that are running that same week. Yeah, with four cohorts each. Yeah, meaning forty eight different experiences of your product. You wouldn't notice it, and I always made sure to look at everything. Yeah, and in some cases you can say, "Hey, the logging is wrong," or right. In certain cases, it's like, "Oh yeah, you broke this thing." Right. You took all of like X entity type out of the type head. Right. Well, cool. Place navigation is gone now. <laughs> oh, oops. There's like a one line something. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think it was doing that. I remember the first time I didn't trust the result. I go and look at the results myself. And the first time you do that and you see the complexity and you see everything that's actually moving at every interval in every country on every device, you're like, oh my God, this is a crazy complex system. And we're trying to say, if I change the play button by 16 pixels, revenue in Ireland goes down. I'm like, I don't buy it. I don't think so. (laughs) And, but so then you take that and you go somewhere else. The, the system complexity doesn't necessarily go down that much because an app at a certain size becomes interdependent enough that if you change a thing here, maybe that has another effect somewhere else, but like your understanding of that system also doesn't increase. So it's like you, you take away the all seen eye of deltoid or whatever it was, and you replace it with whatever the tools are now that you can get for a startup. And then you have two or three people assigned to track it. It's, it's not going to get any better. It's going to yeah. get like far worse. I, th- I think it was that experience of being in there and seeing, oh my God, this is almost not possible to understand. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or like you don't spend enough time on like actually trying to go beyond analysis. Yeah. And reverse engineer what is actually happening here right. and, and getting more signals than just, hey, revenue in Ireland is yeah. down. Yeah. And it's also like yeah. when you're not Facebook right now, up until recently, there it was no good A-B testing software. Yeah. And right. Statsig is kind of like the only one that has recently come out because it's like a evolution of what Deltoid was because it's yeah. some ex-Facebook folks like launched darkly and like hooked into amplitude like all that stuff is very 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 manual you don't get error bars you don't like you don't like you know so it's only now catching up but i think it's interesting is in this conversation is like well okay now you have the tool do you even need that tool right well yeah exactly i mean that that's where i i always get frustrated is it's if you're trying to do something that your example so good it's we now have the technology to make the video immersive and we would like to do that I'm sure Instagram had a similar thing when they switched their aspect ratios all over the place. You know, so like I imagine that would have been a difficult decision just because it was such a branded thing, the square photo. Well, and variability in feed changes. And very feed changes, heights and all that stuff. And like I could see how that would be a very difficult decision. I'm sure that was probably part of the argument in Facebook land too, where it's like, well, now it's taller. So <laughs> you can see less things. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I both research and data coming out of Facebook, I came away with a very different perspective coming in. It was mostly just these are inputs, same as anything else. I would say sometimes just as subjective because I could see how you could take, you could give me either results, data or research, and I could spin both just as easily, research in particular. And I think you just water it down a little bit in how much you take it as an input. I'm just happy to spectate now working somewhere that has neither research or data. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a funny thing because I feel the same way sometimes where in my head, like I'm like in my perfect design, sometimes I'm like, I don't want either. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It, it does feel better. Yeah. Anytime you have less people, less cooks in the kitchen, things get a little simpler. I mean, there's less coordination required for sure. Right. But then it is you have to have an opinion. Yeah. 
and you've got to have a vision and you've got to have an idea of what you want and go through it and make it and learn from it. Yeah. And then I think when you haven't launched yet also, you you luckily you don't have yes. that baseline yet, Yeah, which does help because like as soon as you sort of plant a foot somewhere, it's we have this many users or whatever it is. You know? It's like, look at threads, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, exactly. oh my God, biggest thing ever. And then a week later, it's, oh my God, everybody left. And yeah. it's, who cares? Like, right. it, it, Have you ever seen an actual retention curve? Because yeah. that's what they look like. <laughs> yeah. Like I've never not seen a retention curve that looks like that. Yeah, they all. Yeah. It, the question is, where does it bottom out? Not right. if it bottoms out. And I think that's the weird thing to me is it's like that coverage is so perfect because it's, it exemplifies, I think, this persistent total misunderstanding from the outside looking in of like how any of this works. I mean, by the way, I happen to love threads. I've actually almost switched Same. over fully, yeah. which is pretty wild because I didn't follow anybody on threads. It just sort of like opened up and there it was. I also can't stand the new X algorithm, whatever it's doing. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, I think like that that that's a great example because it's like every retention curve will go down and we all get excited if it bottoms out like above 15, above 20, above 20, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. It's oh my god. It's like it plateaued, which is incredible in the first place, and at what level? But like the fact that it bottomed out somewhere isn't bad. <laughs> it's like that's yeah. absolutely what's going to happen. Yeah. If you have a platinum plated launch that Threads has, something we've never seen before, yeah. Of course your retention curve is going to look dog shit because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's just no way that like you had it that right. Right. Your new user number is astronomical. Yeah. So your churn is going to have to match. There's just no other way around it. I think that the thing that a lot of folks don't realize is you are so much more wrong that you are right. Yeah. And a lot of folks I see go into even smaller product discussions or even like when they're hanging out with a friend in the park and I overhear them discuss like their thesis for something yeah. and the language that they use is so definitive mm. and it just lacks any kind of room for it being wrong. And and then when you go into a deeper discussion like that and you hold your ground and this other person has another opinion yeah. and you don't open up a small door for some compromise or like new information to enlighten you and make mm -hmm. you change your mind that's where a lot of this stuff goes wrong. And I think that going back to that can happen with data. If you put on your blinders and you say it's, it's data only, mm -hmm. you make some short-term solid decisions that are long-term net negative. That happens with research when you like have selective hearing or when you have a biasing researcher. Now, I actually think that at Facebook, we had a pretty clutch research org and there was like a really high bar for having unbiased research. What I found interesting at that time was at a certain point, your product starts, it's beyond its apex, right? Like it starts atrophying and there's a lot of lemon squeezing that starts happening. We got to squeeze the lemon out of newsfeed. We got to squeeze the lemon out of all this other stuff. So a lot of what I was thinking about when you were saying, hey, you're like holding up this rock. Actually, what it, it is to me is like, you know, when you're playing a platform game and you have to run away from the back of the screen that's coming at you mm -hmm. and you have to jump from cloud to cloud to cloud and make sure that you don't drop. That's in a very slow way how a company like Facebook is mm. burning through its assets. Yeah, Actually, WhatsApp is an extremely stable asset. It was built truly on connection and not on like yeah. engagement eyeballs. But if you look at Facebook, it was like this thing based on eyeballs and people over time get tired by that. Yeah, If you look at Instagram, going from feed to stories to reels and then TikTok coming along. The curves of acceleration get so much faster, but
but the curves of fall off are going to be as hard, right? And even if there is a true competitor to Facebook, which like they've now encountered a couple of times, their ability to keep that afloat still is kind of unproven. I think that the only service in the social space that truly has held like a candle to them is YouTube. Mm. Snapchat is in its own world. It has its own niche. But YouTube as what was that that weird thing that showed up next to Google videos in like 2005, six, and then got a boatload of money thrown at them out of nowhere mm-hmm. is probably a better acquisition than Instagram. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're probably like, very, they're very close to each other yeah. probably, but in the same vein. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if one's Broadway and one's Park Place, I think YouTube is Broadway <laughs> and Instagram's <laughs> Park Place. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, YouTube is incredible. I think uh, having thought about it a lot from the Facebook side of things, it it was always very frustrating. Sort of like, what was it? What what could be done to to replicate it? And I think I always retreated to the areas that I knew, like interface and that kind of thing, which clearly wouldn't touch or or cross the chasm. But that was sort of always how I perceived it. Well, it's not because their interface is great. It was exactly you know, and I think like that. That's like often one of the hardest lessons to learn as a designer is that you can make a 20x better YouTube interface. It's not going to be anywhere close to the same like efficacy of the product. Although we never, I don't think we ever quite got the video player there at Facebook anyway, but even if we had, it's like wouldn't have made a difference, I don't think. Yeah, probably not. I mean, there's a lot of ecosystem design in that, right? Totally, Every, everything yeah. that lives on YouTube lives to be pushed into the ether of the whole internet. Yeah. Things that are living on Facebook I mean, some of these watch things are public. Yeah. But the public page that you land on then, Facebook has not had, has not built the apparatus to make their public SEOable pages. Right. As platinum plated, sprinkles on top as Google does, right? Right. It's interesting that, like I might've said the same thing about Twitter because there was like how many Twitter competitors came before threads. It's I can think of eight on my phone where Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I've got an idea. Let's make another Twitter. And there's literally, there's a ton. None of them will work, I don't think, or had worked. And I thought to myself, it would be sort of in the same way I would have thought it might be impossible to replicate YouTube. I was like, well, you'll never replicate the feeling of being on Twitter or like my network or any of these things. Or the history of it. Or the history. And all of that's true. The funny thing is now is neither is like Twitter isn't doing that for me either. It's like it sort of stopped doing that for me also. So it's wait, now no one's doing it. What am I going to use instead? I'm going to use this other one that basically very similar, but feels better in some ways. And I wasn't expecting that. It would be like if YouTube just sort of like stopped working, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, and if that happened, then maybe Facebook video could come in. I feel like part of the difference there is that tweets were always so ephemeral because mm-hmm. it was so real time. Whereas YouTube, the content's so much more evergreen. Back to renovations, a good how to do this thing in your house video that somebody posted like 10 years ago that's got like 40,000 views, but it's the perfect video right. for like right what I need then. Yeah. And that's so much harder to displace than like your ephemeral fountain of text content right. because it's, well, I could really get that from anywhere. And if it also is gone, then I'll just replace it with this ephemeral fountain of video content right. or like whatever whatever the ephemeral fountain is. There's not a lot holding you there unless you're a creator and then you have a vested interest in, well, I really want this one to work because I have all these followers here. Yeah. But for the regular person, they're like, 
I don't What's care. Just yeah. where's the content at? Where's where's the good content? Because which, that's all I want. Which leads me to get to the point of I hate that everything's a video now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're. I love it. <laughs> every day is, but every day is your worst nightmare because it's like yeah. autoplay video everywhere. Oh yeah, and it's and I also don't like. It's also sort because of, I was always sort of in the, the the school of execute to perfection. It's like everything needs to be shot on an Alexa with incredible audio, widescreen. With perfect lighting, the whole what was like it, 21 millimeters. Yeah, like so 18 millimeters. What, what were you shooting at? You were shooting super wide angle. Oh, you mean like back then? Yeah, 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 definitely. And I, I was like, my aspect ratios were like trailers. But you know, I think now it, it's it's it is sad. I think to me, like when you're somebody of that orientation, it can be kind of sad when things get democratized to the extent that they did, because you enjoy a certain level of like isolation where it's like, oh, I'm the only one that knows how to use this camera. Mm-hmm. Nobody else even can do this because yeah. I'm the only one that has this camera. And I remember even in art school, I had, I was, I bought a 5D. I still have it. And nobody had a 5D. It Mark like, II. Oh my God. It was the one with the video. Yeah. It must Mark have been II. Mark II. Yeah. yeah. So I was the only one that could make video like that. And everyone was like, oh my God, just because it was video. But then now it's, everybody can do video. Nobody wants to watch my crappy 4K Alexa film. They want to watch video from their phone because it like it works better it's funnier whatever it is and it's just a different skill set now on display often like a more entertaining one for sure but so for me it was sad because i was like oh man i had this advantage now it's gone you know Which but was the advantage really the quality bar of which you would make the videos or was the advantage more the narrative storytelling that came out of that yeah i think it's it's all things together and i think the latter is probably the more like defensible for sure but I think the former, I never would discount because I still to this day think people don't even really perceive the impact of things like quality, audio quality, video quality, whatever it is on their perception of what the thing is. So if I was making a video to explain something on Twitter or something, production quality, I would look at it as an advantage just because yeah. it was it was a thing that would like, it would allow it to stand out in some way or form. You always can fall back on narrative and concept and that kind of thing. I say this about this podcast where when I started doing it, I was like, I'm not going to be the perfectionist on Mm -hmm. getting the audio right. We're sitting in a room. Yes, there are two curtains, but there is no sound deadening. Maybe over time, I'll get some nice sound deadening panels, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But there is a minimum bar of someone not noticing that this wasn't recorded in a studio. That's the bar really that you need to hit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really interesting iPhone videography coming out now mm-hmm. where you make certain shots as long as they're like a low aperture shot, completely stop down, no bokeh. You can put a camera next to an iPhone and people are going to have a problem where they're like, oh yeah, I know how to taste a Chardonnay, but I don't know what that very specific grape from that island in, in Malta is. Is this an iPhone or is this like this other thing? Yeah. And especially then if you take away other signifiers like the lens, say you would take a 4K video and you would zoom in and you would make sure that like the lens crop mm-hmm. is not the noticeable iPhone 18 millimeter or whatever it is. Yeah you would totally mess with a ton of people because the quality of that sensor and the processing power behind it is so strong nowadays. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really do a lot of video anymore, I guess just because it's no longer necessary as like a workplace tool. just can communicate through text now. Uh, But I do do miss it a lot sometimes. So you're both now in in very opinionated workplaces. For you, George, it's like a year, year and a half since like you kind of like left. You've been... Longer gone, Alex. Yeah, five years maybe now. How do you look at the combination of 
I've always said a combination of opinion, research, and data. So vision, any kind of qualitative that you have, any kind of quantitative that you have. Mm. Did you pick Linear because you knew it was like a vision-driven company? How do you look at that now? Yeah. Well, yes, I did. I also picked it because I'd spent a lot of time in, I guess you could call it like social software, which is a dark art. And I don't mean that as like dark, like darkness. I mean, as kind of a mystical art. It's kind of unclear sometimes why things work when they do. And I got frustrated, I think, over time trying to convince people to do things they weren't already doing. So like, hey, what if you could do the following? And I think something that started to appeal to me was more objective goals. Like, here's a bunch of people who are doing a thing. We want to make them help them do it better. And by the way, they're already paying for it. We just need to make that process a lot easier. You know, my example when I was like looking was always shipping. Ships need to get from A to B. Let's make it better. That's a goal I can like totally wrap my head around. And I think, I guess maybe just enough time in the social trenches made that other side appeal to me a little bit. And I think issue tracking and, and what Linear does falls into that sort of just like objective goal camp. And you combine that with a very opinionated design-led organization and you have sort of like on paper the perfect mixture for what I was looking for. And so it has been very different, I think, and in a lot of ways sort of like all your wishes coming true and it's, is, that, is that actually what you want? Because it's very different in a lot of ways. But I think it's, it's been really interesting and I think it feels maybe a little bit more like being in the military kind of where it's like you have a much more efficient organization with much more clear goals. Maybe, I don't know if the military is actually efficient, <laughs> but my perception of the military, or let's say a kitchen, I'm watching the bear, right? You know, so like yeah. a kitchen where there's defined roles, everyone's excellent at what they do. You have your responsibilities or film set, maybe the same situation. It's actually interesting. I forget which podcast I was listening to. They were talking about this, like why software companies don't run more like this. Cutthroat, roles defined, kitchen, Film set, construction site, all of them figure it out, you know. Well, and the difference, I think, is that opinion. Right. It's like in all of those other examples, there's someone in charge. There's yeah. like one stakeholder. <laughs> right. yeah, there's yeah. a single stakeholder or like yeah. a very small amount of stakeholders. Yeah. And they have a really strong opinion of like what everyone should be doing. Yeah. And you can bring your own opinions too. It's not a dictatorship, but right. there's a there's an obvious mission and there's yeah. an obvious place of, hey, we're all trying to go here and do you want to go here too? Okay, get on. If not, yeah. go somewhere else basically. Yeah. But I think that is the real differentiator. And it's that's, so it's easy to have that in the beginning when you're small, you're going somewhere new and it's like, we're going to go here. When you get there, where do you go from there? And I yeah. think that's where, a lot of companies just like, well, shit, I don't know. Metrics. What do the metrics yeah, say? You, you know, yeah. like yeah, yeah. people spend too much time thinking about where they want to get and they don't know where to go after that. Potentially also core to the business model of venture capital and right. then the growth at all costs thing. Uh, I love that the first episode of the first season of The Bear is called System. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> it's all around. He comes in and yeah, it's they like, got their system. Yeah, yeah. Don't mess with the system, yeah. you know. And he's like, "Well, but I'm." Yeah. Anyway, no spoilers, but yeah, I've never been in a kitchen like properly, but I have been on film sets, and I've never been in the military or construction site. But like, what appealed to me a lot about the film set is it's pretty wild to see upwards of a hundred people working with one clear goal, as you say, with hyper-defined roles. Like literally to the point where it's like, you stand there, you stand there, you say, you speak when I tell you to, et cetera. And it can feel a little bit like intense, but then it's the only way you can execute these things at scale 
and at the quality that they do. Yeah. Oh yeah, imagine being Christopher Nolan and having to tell some random DP that like maybe he yeah. should look a little bit more over there. No, this is how you yeah. do it. Like, like we're is... gonna make sixty cuts of the movie and we're gonna test them in all the different <laughs> markets. Yeah, and then the one that per- sells the most tickets, that's the one everyone else will get to see. Wait, uh, wait, who did two cuts again recently? Uh, oh, the Spider. I think Spider Verse. Spider Verse yeah, did a bunch, didn't. but that was, I think, not test part of the concept. But it was part of the concept. Yeah. The um one thing I've been thinking about a little bit in that regard is I generally enjoy autonomy in my role, and I think as you get more senior, you get more of that usually, more trust, and people allow you to sort of like do what you want to do. But I think like in that metaphor. I think it actually sometimes would be better if I was truly like an instrument and some and whoever it was with the with the opinion was telling me this is what you need to do go do it. And I know some aspect of my skill set is the ability to think for myself and consider other things, but sometimes I'm like I don't know, <laughs> maybe it would be more efficient if we all are following this guy and he's telling us what to do and we do it really well. And I think the part where like you don't have to turn your brain off completely is yeah. like Part of what you would be hired for in that scenario is when they tell you to do something that's stupid and you're like, no, this is stupid. And maybe you don't say, no, this is stupid. You say, yes, okay. And then you come back and you're like, okay, here's all the reasons why. We found a better way. Yeah. And we and we found a better way. Like I it's that ability to take the idea, understand the root of like the why behind it, and being like, okay, does that actually map? Because sometimes, yeah, it maps and it's great. Sometimes it's, oh, well, actually something like this will be better, something like this will be better, but you're still sort of like, you're not coming up with the whole idea yourself, but you are guiding the idea seedling to its appropriate location and for its best chance of growth, you know? I think that there's something there as well, going back to the feedback loop thing, where combining feedback loop and the bear, where you you are in a kitchen, you are working on, on something, you bring it over to your head chef and it's like one, two, three pieces of feedback and you go away and you do it again. Yeah, yeah. That is actually, especially in larger organizations, not existent right now. Mm. Like it really is, hey, I'm going to present you this work. Here's all the context. Here's all this kind of stuff. Let's make sure to not offend anyone when we give the feedback. So we're cushioning the feedback. Yeah. On top of this in a remote culture, you're not sitting next to each other a lot. You're not seeing each other a lot. So like when you say something or you write something, that reverberates so poorly because the whole assumed good intent goes out the door when you don't have the oxytocin connection between the humans. It's becoming very, very clear now. But there's this thing where like, oh, wouldn't it be great to just have a five-minute critique meeting and just say, yes, no, yes, no, maybe put that over there, do this over here. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And and I think, like you said, it's remarkably difficult remote because it just comes across more harshly you know when you're not able to just sort of you can do a lot of that hedging that's that you're maybe would soften it with body language and vocal tone and everything and it can still be as efficient and quick in five minutes but if you do if you write if you were to take the transcript it might be really hardcore but yeah i was gonna say part of that too is that like in a especially in a remote context it's got to be scheduled and so it feels like process where like Josh and I have 30 of those a week because it's like not a thing that we're planning to do. It's just, yeah. I'll just wheel my chair over and yeah. hand Josh a prototype and he'll be like, oh yeah, what about this? Try that. And we just do that constantly yeah. amongst all of us. Yeah. And you just don't get that remotely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's uh, also like that, I'm, I'm saying this as if like, hey, everyone should be able to do a five minute crit, but it's you do that when you have a high level of 
trust yeah and mutual respect in a situation it's a kitchen you know it's like yeah. you know everyone there yeah is they're on their shit and it's i know what i'm gonna get versus yeah. oh let's have crit you get a bunch of feedback that, like doesn't even matter or whatever it's like off base or mm -hmm. like from someone with no context but whatever the hell's going on and it's like i was i had got nothing from that yeah <laughs> you know yeah. you're making a pasta dish and they're like well how about putting it on a sandwich yeah yeah exactly yeah. which could be good by the way right. yeah <laughs> i do want to learn more like so kitchen film set all these things they make sense to me because i can see how they scale and i can see how you could apply that to a company of under 50 to 100 people Obviously, when you get more than that, it gets more complicated in software. I don't know anything about construction, but if you've ever done this, I know you both have some aspect of like home anything. It feels like an impossibly complex project if you involve more than one trade. Oh, to make a skyscraper? It's crazy. Like... Yeah. But just like, <laughs> hey, hey, I want to get a new front door. Great. It, you're going to hire like 12 people. I mean, if you're going to do it with hiring people, it's, it's going to be really complex. I do not understand how you build a skyscraper. And I think actually learning like really deeply understanding how mm -hmm. how they go and do that would be a fascinating endeavor just be from like an organizational design perspective because there's just so many people so many people so many different trades i'm always wondering like when they make a mistake and they're like oh that building doesn't stand up so well it's like why doesn't that happen all well, the time? well i i mean I <laughs> all think... the decisions hasn't been made beforehand yeah and calculated and everything yeah and actually what's funny is this week's episode featured annie fryman who used to be an architect, like in basically early career, which is when you're when you're drafting yeah. for very little money. Yeah. And that is how you do that. You actually have mm. like you you have brute force of a large crowd of very talented, very hungry people that need to do certain amounts of work for certain amounts of hours to get mm -hmm. certain accreditation mm. and a lot of people. Yeah. But a lot of those decisions get made beforehand. But you still need a lot. It's still a lot of people making a lot of decisions. And I think that's the part that interests me where it's like, like, what, how are they doing that yeah. like, at, at scale and as efficiently as they clearly are? And I, I feel maybe the agile methodologies are the ones that like were like a superpower one, something else like get in the way where it's like, mm. you can go back on any decision that you've made. <laughs> right. I was going to say like the, one <laughs> yeah. of, one of yeah. especially with big buildings and like physical bridges, uh, yeah. any of those things, it's like, there are lots of laws. There's lots of regulations, yeah. and there, and then, and uh, yeah, there's and there's lots of physical constraints of just yeah. like real materials. Like yeah. a pixel doesn't have a tensile strength, yeah. so there's a lot of stuff that you can model ahead of time. But also, yeah, you can't take it back. Yeah. You can just push an update and fix a bug on a piece of software. Mm. But like when you when you're making and a movie too is like a little less true these days because they make a lot of edits after the fact now but like used to be that like oh yeah when we print it it's done and mm -hmm. so we have to this is another kind of interesting thing too that i've been thinking about recently is like when stuff becomes so easy it becomes also so easy just not to think about it yeah and a lot of the stuff that i feel like we're nostalgic for because it's like it was so good back then whatever it's because someone had to spend a day cutting out the letters yeah. to put them on a thing and they yeah. spend a lot of time and now you can just open figma hit t and type and it's uh, yeah i made letters but you don't have to think about any of it yeah. and there's something about the physicality of things and the you can't take it back that yeah. like just forces you to be a lot more intentional and a yeah. lot more thoughtful in all the decisions you make because i mean yeah. the, in the in the most micro sense it's like when you go to work you have to think about how am I going to get there? When do I leave? That gets me there on time. What am I going to wear? As soon as we went into the pandemic, the big <laughs> joke was that everyone was wearing either pajama yeah. pants, shorts, or nothing at all. Yeah. 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 
yeah, it'd be cool if all these companies were just like set up shop, ship their thing. It was like, all right, great job, guys. <laughs> See you on the next one. <laughs> that's the, that's it. It's V1 of one. Yeah, it'd be pretty it, funny. It, it's funny that you mentioned the, the building thing, though, because I was driving on like Fifth and Brandon yesterday and there's like a new construction lot that's that's about to kick off. And there were just very, very few things that were there. And I was like, in a very short amount of time, there's going to be a lot of material here. Yeah. And then within a year, that material is all going to be used and it all will be done in a certain way. Yeah. But because they need to be on schedule, there's just so much human intervention and a lot more stress involved on those. Yeah. Like a different type of stress. Especially if you go outside the United States too, like Chinese projects where they stand up a hospital in three days. Oh, or yeah. There's some incredible projects that I, I think of. They really dwarf the software endeavor sometimes to make things like changing colors seem quite trivial, you know? Yeah. And not in the sense, more just in like, why is this hard type thing, if that's not. <laughs> it's it's going to be interesting to see now that there's 3D printed houses. Yeah, yeah. It's are there instead of like flippers, are they going to be like 3D home printers that will just buy a piece right. of real estate, knock it down, 3D print a house, yeah, live in it, learn from it, beta test a new one, yeah, send it out. Anywho, so we covered a lot of Facebook time. We've covered some of our kind of musings. What are some ways that you have found that all of these things that we've learned along the way in building products and social and utility, AI, looking at George, that you actually didn't notice are really helpful in everyday life or problematic, like looking at a non-current sign in a store? <laughs> Hmm. I don't know. I mean, the biggest thing for me recently in the past like year or two is just like continuing to learn because I think that I just got so bored with apps. I just got so bored with doing a dialogue or a bottom sheet or doing a carousel or a grid and oh, let's like redesign filters. And I felt like I should just retire because all of this stuff Groundhog seems, day. Yeah, it just seems so, bo it's like definitely, and even more so at, when you're like at a big social company for too long is it's, you just start solving the same problems over and over again and you forget that there's more out there. And so I feel like leaving and going somewhere like Humane where like we're just trying to do some like really crazy stuff. It's like, oh yeah, you you can actually do anything. I think there's this like, just there's like an experiment with a cat in the box, learned helplessness. You know, you just, okay. you just stop, you, you, I forget the experiment or whatever, but it's, yeah. you know, you, the cat eventually learns to stop trying because yeah. it like, it knows that every time it tries to leave the box, it gets like a shock. And I think that like, that's what happens at these big companies that you like, I mean, I don't know, I couldn't even tell you how many like crazy things Alex prototyped. And not that it like, I think you ignored that and just kept going anyway, but lots of people that just gets pushed out of them of stop trying to innovate because it's a big waste of time. And it's, I mean, 90% of the stuff you made at Facebook probably didn't ship. And it's, e it's easy to forget that, oh yeah, you can do stuff. For me, it's just, and it's not just like work, but just remembering, oh yeah, there's there's still more to learn. For me, it's, oh, I really liked rectangles and springs. You know, it's like that, I thought that was my identity was rectangles and springs. And now I've made like Python scripts in the past year that are like just as cool as any of those origami prototypes ever made. And it's like nice to just sort of like continue redefining myself and not get too stuck in one place. 
Yeah, I, one thing on that made me think of us. I I frequently in my when I do app design, kind of like take the the craziest possible path. An example might be like you want to go from one screen to another. You could transition every element on that screen to the next one, and it'd be super fluid. Or you could just use the out of the box stock iOS transition. And the sad thing I think I've learned over time is like ninety five percent of the time, the latter is probably the right answer. You know, it's because the work involved of the fluid thing is probably not worth it for actual success, you know? And I think that was like a pretty interesting realization. I think that what I've taken from what I've learned and like my experience as a designer, I think when I notice it in everyday life, when I do anything now, I bring my approach as a designer to that thing in a way that I find very enjoyable. So like I got into chess, really into chess. And I bring with me this like obsessive, go super deep, get way into it, get really OCD about everything. That's the approach that I go into chess with. I got really into golf, same thing. I have a data table for my like club yardages that I could show you that changes all the time. It's hitting this database. It's like all this crazy stuff. That whole experience is like super designed. And then there's other aspects of my work that are very visual. So it's like, oh, you know what else you could do? You could design your own golf ball. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to spend a long time doing it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like all these skills that you acquire actually are really useful and fun all over the place. And I found a lot of joy, I think, in picking up new things and applying the full brute force of everything else I've learned, whether it's video, design, process, writing, you name it. As soon as the gun's pointed at the new thing, it's like full power, you know? And I like that a lot. It's been really fun to find, uh, I got into cooking now, not because of the show, but I got really into it. And it's like, you can go super deep on cooking. Yeah. And you never know like what one of those things that you pick up is going to be helpful for the next thing down the road. And so just bringing that approach of like, I'm not a fixed thing, but I'm just sort of moving through life and like collecting Mm -hmm. little experiences and knowledge and ways to do things and like put it in a pot and see what comes out. But you have to keep putting new things in for new things to come out. And you're right about the app thing, because I think 10 years ago, more than that, 15 15 years ago and onward, whatever, 2007 onward, we were kind of like learning all these things for the first time. Like I remember seeing like the patent for H scroll, you know, and it's like, <laughs> wow, what if we've got too much stuff to put on the screen? Maybe it can be off the screen. Yeah. So, oh my God, that's incredible. <laughs> patent it. Write that down. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then now it's kind of like, hey, we have to get user input on this thing. We have over the years seen all 2000 possible variants. Which one would you like to use? You know, yeah. it's very seldom where it's like, we need to innovate the crap out of this screen, you know, because answer is you probably don't. And it'd be way better if you used any one of five established patterns for, I don't know, modal presentation yeah. <laughs> or whatever yeah, it is. I mean, there's so many yeah. stock parts available to just yeah. build a thing with. Yeah. And I love me some good d- designer porn level animation transition. Yeah like this very visceral feeling when I touch a thing for the first time. Yeah. But when you have to go through that flow every time, yeah, it gets really old really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing about it specifically is if you spend too much time on that side of the problem solving and you don't understand what actually the core killer thing is that you're doing, that's where I think a lot of over-designed things go wrong. And then it saddens me because there is then this correlation with, oh, there was this beautiful thing and it didn't work. Oh, yeah. You know, and there's this other beautiful thing and it also didn't work. You know, and there was like Facebook paper and and it didn't work. You know, it's like, well, who decided what working looked like, first of all? Right. And then was that bar met? For the record, I think Facebook paper worked great because 
even if it wasn't a good product, it gave us pop animation. It gave us like so many fundamental things just from a, like a technology perspective that they had to invent to pull something like that off that then mm -hmm. drove another five years of cool stuff happening mm -hmm. at Facebook. And so yeah. like failure, sure, from whatever someone decided was the important number that day, right. but like successful in like it showed people a better way to do things. And it gave Facebook a lot of credibility in design all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. But I, I do yeah. think that that last part that you're saying is like, I'm tying together like two of the things, George, that you just said, which was on the one hand, you're always learning and what you're learning now likely will pay off later. There's also this other stuff where a lot of people are just so obsessed with winning and being right. But actually, like when you're wrong is when you learn. And so it's also as important to in the moments that you don't get to the ideal outcome, you identify what is this thing that I'm taking away from this or what is this thing that I'm learning? Yeah. Where have you previously used a spreadsheet that now is the foundation for your golf spreadsheet? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. The one I have now is pretty unique. I think like if anything, it'd just be more like a like a very uh, objective driven approach to results probably. I don't know if I actually pulled that spreadsheet from anywhere else, but it's it's become very useful, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. When you look at that, what do you what do you take away from it? The spreadsheet? Yeah. Do you pick your club based on it or do oh, you fill yeah, your yeah, bag? Yeah. Like I mean, yeah, you're basically just reducing the margin of error for how far you think the ball is going to go for any given club. So it's like you can get it to within five to 10 yards. It's, it's pretty great. You know, that's pretty crazy. If you can hit a ball 200 yards away to within that kind of margin and know that that club is going to do it different than that club, it's like pretty mm. crazy. You're just constantly perfecting this tiny little thing. I think that's what... I mean, with anything I do, that's like the common thread. I love coffee because I'm constantly perfecting the way the water flows through this little brown dirt different ways. And it's you can spend forever perfecting that. Same with chess, same with golf, same with cooking, whatever. I think in the end, I've realized I love, I love anything like that where you can go hyper, hyper deep forever and find other people who love going super deep, who've gone deeper than you on the thing and can teach you how to do it. That's definitely what I get the most out of. I think design is one of those things, but it's different in some ways than those things too, for the reasons you say, you know, where I feel like if you ever played Command and Conquer, we've sort of found the edge of this current map a little bit. The fog of war has cleared a little bit and we now need to go to a different level, whatever that means. Maybe it's in, in like interfaceless AI, who knows, or, yeah. or, or VR or whatever. But I think like we talked earlier about how it felt like the boat had come for us all for VR and actually there was no boat and there wasn't, <laughs> it was totally fine to Not stay. a boat. It was a VR boat. <laughs> it's a VR boat. But it's, now it feels like there's a boat. And I don't know, there's a whole lot of different boats you could get on. The ride that we've been on till now is like kind of ending. It's not bad. It's just part of it is just because the nature of mobile is so optimized. You're right, sitting through a bunch of animations and shit when you're trying to do something out in, because the thing is that what I think attracted a lot of people to making software for phones is the ubiquity of it. It's like, oh, I can make a thing and it can be everywhere and not just like everywhere at, like at home on your computer, but like everywhere, everywhere with everyone all the time. And that's a really interesting space to be like, oh, if I make an app, and it's on everybody's phone and it's cool. Everybody's got this app now, you know, mm -hmm. and like that was very exciting. And then we figured out how to make apps really good. And oh, the screen's pretty small. And so there's only so, so many ways you can configure those rectangles to mm -hmm. like make good stuff. And oh, there's also a very big commercial interest in using these apps to make money. And so we spend a lot of money figuring out 
what's the most optimized way to arrange the rectangles mm. to make the money? That's just where we are. It's all figured out. And this is a very, I'm certainly sounding like an old, jaded, crusty, angry person, but like <laughs> there's not a lot of room to figure stuff out because it's so small and it's so optimized. People are on the go and they just want to use this stuff to like get stuff done and get on with their life. They don't want to sit around and play with your finely crafted thing. Also, because everyone has them. 15 years ago, you were designing for like 2 million people who had iPhones. And now it's 2 bajillion people who have all kinds of different phones. There's something in there, though, that I wonder, and I've said this in a previous episode as well, which is on the one hand, maybe there's a boat and maybe the island's on fire and we need to get off. And on the other hand, I feel like we've had this giant generative divergent moment. And when I look at my phone, I really want it to do less things. Mm-hmm. And so so I do wonder, like, and I think you did this with Cocoon. That was like part of kind of the, the core concept and thesis was like sharing with a smaller group, yeah. more intentional. I do think that there's still something like that coming. Yeah, I think that for as little as we know about Humane, there is less things in your face but an equal amount of function or even more function and so that's like an angle into it and 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 so i truly think that we're getting potentially to a point where we're making more utility and less entertainment again Mm -hmm. which i'm excited about because i really want utility Hmm. yeah i do think if i ever were to work on anything as long as the opportunity remained, I do like like you're saying. It's still crazy to me that the only way I keep up with my family or my close friends is texting them, using an app that I also use to get whatever DoorDash notifications. It's like the same app shouldn't be able to do both those things. And it's wild to me that Apple's never really like hammered this. And I can maybe understand some reasons why. I know painfully aware of many of them, but I do think like you're saying that that remains a space that you could make a very delightful and useful product. I think a big thing changed for me when I had kids, just like having kids sort of like wiped the phone like <laughs> like clean. And I, as a result, sort of was forced to spend less time on all these things I used to spend a lot of time on. And that's been really nice because it's really hard to stop. Like Twitter in particular was really hard for me to not look at. But once you do, it's it's remarkable how much more space you have. And like That one in particular, I think, was probably one of the most toxic influences on my psyche I can recall in recent memory. And so it's been really nice having that like simultaneously be removed from my life as an influence and also just like implode itself as well. I don't want to look at it, you know, but it is sad too. I mean, I know many of us, I think, are the same where it's like I spent a long time caring quite a lot about my influence on that platform and how many followers I have and how many likes a tweet would get and all that kind of thing. Cause it was like materially relevant. The more follow, like a lot of people are like, it doesn't matter. It's, it does matter. We stopped having like a marketing strategy. We just used Twitter, like just tweet about it. And that was all we needed to do to like spin things up. That's probably gone now, I would suspect, but yeah. I think that there's something there though, where yes, it's that part, but personally I found, I'm going to use a term, but I mean it in like a lesser version of small amounts of consistent grieving of atrophying networks that you have invested your time in where like we all of a sudden got hyper good at loose connections Mm. and it's unclear what to do with that now. They're gone. They're gone. I think they might just go away. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and we were never taught to prune. Mm-hmm. Well, you never had to. You know, it's like another one of those things that like wasn't possible before technology. You would just like move towns, and <laughs> yeah. it's just yeah. like, all right, I guess I'll never see any yeah. of you again. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't a thing that was like put in your face of, hey, remember this person from this town you used to live in? But now, because it's all tracked and in there, you're confronted with that more than you ever have ever. And it's interesting to just sort of go through, I guess it has happened before, right? All the people used to talk with on AIM. Again, it was an overlapping circle with a yeah. lot of your high school friends, but still it's, it's kind of part of life, I guess, that like things end. It's weird to be at the end of something that seemed like it was gonna go forever. I mean, I think a lot about the last few times I went to MBK of just, oh, wow, it's I, I can't remember the last time it felt like it used to feel. And you didn't you never knew when the last time was going to be. Mm-hmm. And then just suddenly it's like up oh, and it's just gone, you yeah. know, and it's you're never going to be like that again. And it's wild, crazy, sad, but yeah, part of life. I think that's part of the whole uh, evolutionary design thing. You know, it's like as you get older, it's like some of these things fade away, people fade away, all these things. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think you replace it with whatever pets, kids, other people, partner. I have found in my life turning a lot more in than like when I was growing up, when I was like my 20s designer, all I wanted to do is be as known as possible, I want to be as famous as possible. And now I look at all of that as liability and I'm like, I want to know as few people <laughs> I want to know as few people as possible. I want to talk to as few people as possible. And I care about less people more, which is very different. But it's helpful to have that some of these things like also be like just <laughs> cratering on the side where it's like, oh, it doesn't matter anyway, because that network's dead. It's kind of a bummer to end on. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I don't think of it I don't think of it in a negative way. <laughs> that, would, that would be a pretty dark ending. <laughs> Yeah. To me, it feels like the last two decades have been this really interesting experiment in the human condition because you would probably even say 25 years where people started getting online. There were very few rules of the road. It was like a wild west for a while. Then there was this kind of heyday of bad actors were not really there yet. They were slowly accumulating over time. And then there was this big tipping point where the algorithms were manipulated. We were outnumbered and likely the amount of bad started outweighing the good. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about Twitter specifically. Like Twitter for me was this really important part of my life in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12 until I actually moved here. Mm-hmm. It started kind of like falling off because I had all these people. Yeah. or a lot of them in real life all of a sudden, and that was way more important. Then when I started re-engaging, I started noticing much more toxic behavior on it. Mm-hmm. Part of that was probably the algorithm. Part of that was how herd mentality started going. It really, over the last five years, hadn't been that effective or useful for me anyway. Yeah. My network atrophied. Actually, what I found interesting about threads is, yes, you have a follower count. That thing is like from the Stone Age in yeah. internet years, right? Yeah. And so as a part of onboarding on the threads, I think I have about 5% of my main follower account on Instagram on threads. And I'm super happy to know that number. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel like there's any performance thing anymore, even though that's just such a dumb thing. Yeah. I am excited. Like there's this convergence, I think, that we need more utility in our life. But there's also this convergence that we need to be more mindful with our time. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that there's like various other things where if you can bring a small group of folks closer together, Mm -hmm. I know you've tried it with Cocoon before. 
I'm fairly sure that there's still something there. Oh yeah. Right. And so we, I, I feel like you are like a year or two too early. You know, I mean, we talked about this too, of like if you had launched cocoon during COVID, you know, it would have been a totally different story. And I, retro is kind of like hitting that like specific point, especially with the, with the family. Totally. Yeah. And I think as excited as I am about threads, I feel like we're just all kind of like, mass socialed out (laughs) you know and i think that i'm much more excited for smaller communities yeah i really like i just want to see the national weather service yeah (laughs) that's what i want (laughs) total i think you like you need that global chat room but then you also need the niche places to go and like connect with people and i think that that's where it feels like things are headed or at least that's where like i get most of my like internet satisfaction it's like the origami group in Facebook. That's the only reason I open Facebook is to, like yeah. go to the origami group. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's like a handful of discords that like provide me some yeah. like interesting value. And it's nice to have those more purposeful buckets rather than here's a giant bucket, put whatever you want in there. So I think that's the key insight, which a lot of people I think misunderstand is if it's a bucket. I and, and this might be wrong, but I think the truly the way to execute this close, small group, whatever you want to say, is small, distinct buckets. You don't make the bucket smaller. And this, everyone always points to path. They're like, oh, path, too bad. You know, it's like, well, yeah, because they just made the bucket smaller. It was like their whole thing. It's like Dunbar's number. It's That isn't the core problem. The problem is context collapse. If you can comment on my post, and so can you, and so can my mom, just because I, only three of us, that doesn't matter. You don't know my mom. It's super weird. My mom needs to be in a separate bucket than you guys, unfortunately. Th- that might be the wrong insight because that was the thing that we hammered on and it didn't work. But there's some other reasons why I could say it probably didn't work at scale. But like a lot of the times I see this tried, it's that they make the bucket smaller and you're still sharing in a way where multiple people can see the same thing that are not part of the same group. And I think that's often the core failure. Different contexts, different code switching for different groups, basically. Yeah. I think actually like stories, the stories reply model is brilliant in some ways because you can share to a small group, let's say close friends, but the reply model there is separate. So I'll share the same photo to both of you, but if I get a reply, it's going to be distinct and maybe in across a group context too. And I think that's really important. And I think it, it drives me insane when people talk about this, like just make the number smaller and even referencing path, I think demonstrates that misunderstanding because it's that was like so clearly not the way to do it. And the best person to read on this is Mills. If you've ever read Mills Baker description of it, it's so perfect because he he understood like the core fail there. But I, I've never seen it. The problem is it's not going to get scale that way. It's like if you if you're inherently limiting the size and like intentionally preventing these things from spreading, it's really hard to grow. And that's, yeah. the, that's the hard part. And you also need to be better than iMessage. Which is tough. Which is, I think speaks to how incredible a product that is. The fact that it can, it can dominate every alternative. It has some obvious advantages, but like being the default platform and et cetera. It's some pretty huge advantages, but like still it's pretty crazy. It's feeling very Windows 95 Internet Explorer right now. The iMessage? Just Apple in general. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. I mean, it's really hard. But like they could, They we always worried that they would be like Apple family and it's just tie together photos, the ridiculous photo sharing product that exists. Yeah. Make that a real product. Tie yeah. it together with iMessage and 
do family sharing and all that. I it's mean, like, you're, yeah, you already have your family iCloud that you yeah. pay for and like just attach it to it. All the pieces are there. But I think if you like just the way the photo product is executed, like maybe gives you some indication of why it doesn't exist. But like, yeah, yeah, it was sad. I mean, like we, George and I used to keep up in Cocoon. It was like my Alex app. Yeah. You I mean, know? Yeah, same. Uh. Yeah, exactly. It's like everyone I shared a Cocoon with knew so much more about my life than they do now when we turned it off. I feel like my optimistic hope for where AI will take us is a world where more people are making software and it's smaller, right? If you had the ability to make an iOS app that was just for you and your family, you would probably do that. You would you would 100% do that. And I think what AI unlocks is the ability to like describe stuff and have a computer do it mm, for you. Yeah. And that's probably the only way we're going to get out of this hole is right. it doesn't have to scale. Yeah, it doesn't have to amazing, be a company. Yeah. It's just, oh yeah, this guy made this app and 12 people use right. it and that's it. Well, you maybe know? the company is the conduit that through which I'm able to do that. Yeah, you know? maybe. It's, a, it's an yeah, app yeah. that specializes in allowing me to make an app. Right. And yeah. a company that does that. And then like I go talk to that company and then get my little app and that's the thing that scales, but then my app doesn't need to. Right, know? right. That'd be cool. Yeah. Be that's one cool. hope. A nicer. I uh, like it. Yeah. I like it. Very optimistic. We are now holding the record for longest podcast recording. Oh, nice. On the podcast. So I think that's it for us. It's smart. Sounds good. Yeah, this isn't the uh, some of those podcasts that go like three hours long. <laughs> I, 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 I am not yet Andrew, Andrew Huberman. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Or you know. Lex or Joe Rogan. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for hanging out. Thank you for gabbing away, sharing some of your experiences, sharing some of your thoughts. It's been a pleasure having you around. Same. Thank you for uh, giving us a reason to hang out. Thanks for having us. Amazing. Thanks again for listening. If this was your first episode and you liked it, make sure to check out some of the other ones as well. Don't forget to subscribe and I'll see you next week.